Hey, today we're going to return to Revelation chapter 2. Recall a couple of weeks ago that we entered into a little bit of a series that we're in now, talking about the seven churches. Today, we are going to transition into the second of the seven churches as we move into the church pertaining to Smyrna and move away from that of the first church of Ephesus. Before we examine the church at Smyrna and get into those verses and read that, let's just give a little bit of a recap of what happened and what we learned pertaining to Ephesus. Remember, Ephesus was a thriving church. We had found that Paul established the church upon one of his missionary journeys, but later left, and then John, the apostle, began to water the church, and people began to grow. It was a church, we learned, that passionately loved the Lord. They were eagerly and enthusiastically evangelistic. McGee helped put it in perspective for us when he said, it is difficult for us to sense the state to which the Holy Spirit had brought this church. He had brought the believers in Ephesus into an intimate and personal relationship to Jesus Christ. He had brought them to the place where they could say to the Lord, we love you. He said this was the church that became so potent in this evangelism in which there was such a mighty move in the Spirit of God that probably has never been quite duplicated. It was an amazing church. It was a church that we would want to be part of. We'd be blessed to be part of the Ephesian church. But remarkably, we learned they are rebuked. In the first of seven letters, we learned the church that passionately loved the Lord were rebuked for abandoning their love for Christ. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus speaks and John writes to the church at Ephesus, I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. And we look back and think, why and how? And we have to remember then, as we learned about the city of Ephesus and the church, the city itself was strategically located that made it a great seaport city. that had all kinds of opportunity then for trade and commerce and business. I mean, for that reason, it was known as the crossroads of civilization, the most prominent city in the Roman province of Asia. Which means then, as a great seaport city it was, it just had a lot to offer. A lot of different things were available to people. What kind of things were available? Mostly, we learned, as various forms of pagan worship. Ephesus was known as the center for the worship of the fertility goddess known in Greek as Artemis, or Romanized as Diana. The temple with the statue of Artemis was one of the wonders of the ancient world. So unfortunately, what happened in Ephesus, as we see now beginning to happen today, the world infiltrated the church. So much so it became hard for us to even conceive that the Ephesian believers once had this intense enthusiastic devotion and love for Christ. Paganism basically began to set in. Desires of the culture became much more prominent than keeping that love they had for Christ. We found that the original generation of believers, the founding church members at Ephesus, over time passed away. They died. And the subsequent generation of believers that came in Lost their zeal for God. It sounds very familiar to what's happening in modern churches today and in our country. 
Essentially, for the church at Ephesus, those early church went off the track in their personal relationship to Jesus Christ. And we're seeing, unfortunately, the same thing happen today. I don't have this slide to show you again to be repetitious about the statistics that show us what's happening to this new current generation, what we call Generation Z, the 12 to 24-year-olds. We've looked at it a couple of different times now, but it tells us that they're falling away rapidly. So much so that only 4%, 96% not having any kind of perspective or biblical worldview. Only 4% on average of that 12 to 24-year-old age group would have any adhering to a biblical perspective and standard. For the most part, they have no they have no uh, they have no desire to learn what the, the word of god tells us what we see in ephesus is we can actually see happening in the world today that is what we learned as we applied as we talked about the church of ephesus yeah and it had a sort of historical relevancy of AD 33 about the time that christ died to about AD 100 but it still pertains and still can relate to the church we see today but put that aside and now turn our attention to the second of the seven, which again is Smyrna. It will be known as the Martyr Church. Historically, scholars said this church has significance in the era of AD 100 to AD 314. But we're going to find, once again, it still is relevant to our time today. We're going to read together today Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. So stand with me this morning, if you're able to, to be able to honor the reading of the word. It tells us, as we now turn our attention back to Revelation chapter 2, now focusing upon Smyrna, verse 8, it says this now. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And Father, we come to you today, Lord, at this particular moment, just asking, Lord, for your blessing to be upon the reading of this word. But, Lord, we also turn our attention and invite the Spirit to lead and guide us and direct us to how we can take something that was written so many years ago and see how that church still applies to us today in our modern lives. So, Lord, let us invite the Spirit to lead and guide and direct us so we can find application from this text into our lives today. Let's be thankful for what shall happen here today as we learn and apply. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, with the reading now pertaining to the church at Smyrna, perhaps the place to start the examination for application and understanding is recognizing its proximity of the seven churches and as it relates to Ephesus. So notice I placed a map. You can see it behind me. It's not in your bulletin, but notice the map behind me then begins to give us some understanding of the location, proximity of really the seven churches themselves. 
Notice that Ephesus was the first of the seven, and it then moves northward in the second church to Smyrna, but they all move a little north and a little east before turning south, almost like in a clockwise pattern we can find each of these seven churches in which we're going to be discussing over the next several weeks. But to kind of put things in perspective, notice that if you're in Ephesus and would desire to get to Smyrna, then you're going to travel 35 miles due north. Now, as you observe that map, we should also maybe remind ourselves that these are not fictional churches. These are real churches with real people and real problems. None of the churches are make-believe or fairy tales. Now, despite that truth, it is often the case that people regard Smyrna, the one we're talking about today, as a fictional church. And the question would be, why? Why would we just said they weren't? So why would people sometimes think or believe that Smyrna was not real, that it was fiction? And it's mostly because this is the only mention you'll find of the city or church of Smyrna throughout the entirety of the New Testament. But regardless, it is real. It is a real city with real people, with a real church, having real problems. And just because it is only mentioned once does not equate to the church or the city being insignificant. So with that said, let us discover a few things that's helpful to know about Smyrna. So let me give you a quick overview. You may see behind me, Smyrna was one of the most loveliest, most beautiful cities throughout Asia. It was often called, referred to as a flower or an ornament, and was called the crown of Asia. The city itself, unfortunately, was adorned with beautiful temples and buildings. There was a temple of Zeus. There was a temple of Cybele. There was a temple of Aphrodite. There was a temple of Apollo. There was a temple of Asclepius. So all these things existed throughout the city. But one of the things that's rather interesting about Smyrna is it had a rather large theater. It was the center of music, Josh. It had this large theater which 20,000 people could gather together. A stadium. A stadium of 20,000 people. Today, we still don't find some stadiums holding 20,000 people. We were at the Ford Center last night, and you can't get 20,000 people in it. But this stadium at Smyrna, had the capacity of 20,000 people. It was the center of music. But also, at this stadium, you would often hear, if you were walking through the streets of Smyrna, you would often hear people, Roman residents, worshiping Caesar. By the time the book of Revelation was written, it was common to have emperors being worshipped. Sometimes it was absolutely mandatory required. So quite often we hear the chants coming from the stadium, Kaiser Kurios, Kaiser Kurios, Kaiser Kurios, shouted, which simply means Caesar is Lord. And then for those then that Christians in particular, who refuse to abide and bow and chant Kaiser Kurios, they were sought out and severely persecuted. Persecuted, if you will, in those very stadiums chanting Kaiser Kurios, their 
you're going to be persecuted to a capacity crowd that's now going to be cheering on their bloody torture. They're severely persecuted at the church's murder. But before we get into all the matter of persecution and the martyrdom that they had to face, which actually provides the namesake of the church, you know, as the martyr church, let's go back to verse 8 and begin to recognize something different in the way that it starts off pertaining to the church of Smyrna. There's something noticeably different as we compare Ephesus and Smyrna, something noticeably different in the address to the church. In verse 8, it tells us to the angel of Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So here we find within this verse some attributes of Christ. And the opening address then is so much different than it is pertaining to the church at Ephesus. At Ephesus, Jesus referred to himself as the one who holds the seven stars, which are angels, and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, which are churches. But notice if you will, considerable change occurs for Smyrna. And it's highly significant. He refers to himself no longer as the one who holds the seven stars, who walks in the midst of the seven lampstands. He refers to himself simply as the first and the last who came, who died and came to life. And there's great significance in the way he refers to himself because it gives us his attributes. Two attributes are found there. It's his divine identity that he is the first and the last, and the fact that his experience, that he was dead and now alive. So think about for a moment, if you will, those two attributes, particularly maybe the first, that he is the first and the last, the divine identity. He is the first. He is the last. What does that really mean to say that Jesus is the first and the last? What does it really mean? Well, it means there's nothing before him, and to be nothing after him. He is the first and the last. It's really almost quite that simple. But McGee helps put it in perspective when he says, Jesus has the final disposition of all things. The persecuted believer is needed to know that he was the one in charge, and the persecution was in the planning and purpose of God. Now, think about and read again what McGee is telling us here. That he says that he is the one in charge. Jesus is the one in charge. He's fully man, fully God. And he says the persecution was in the planning and purpose of God. The question that we must ask ourselves, are we aware of this? Are we aware that God is truly in charge? Jesus is in charge. He's controlling all things. He is the beginning. He is the end. And the persecution that we experience in our lives has a plan and a purpose in which God can be brought to glory. Are we aware of this? Jesus, as God's only son, has a final disposition of all things. And the persecution has a purpose and meaning. That doesn't make sense to us at times. But yet we need to remember what Paul wrote in Romans 8.28, that we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It's easy to forget that God has a purpose for all things. When we begin to endure suffering, it's so easy to forget that God can bring something good from that. If part of our purpose is to glorify God, 
And at times, the glory may come to God in the midst of some affliction and some persecution that we may be experiencing. Again, granted, we, we don't always understand it when this happens, and it, it's hard for us to believe that God's in control at that moment. But during the hardship, during the affliction, during the persecution, that we have to endure the suffering that comes along in life, he's still in control, and he can still use it for his glory. It's so hard at times to understand that. October 6th is just an ordinary day for most people. Just another day of the work week. It's just another day going to school. It's another day of just getting up early and going to work. This year, on the calendar year of 2021, October 6th, it happened to occur on a Wednesday. It's just an ordinary day. It's no big deal, right? But to an English-speaking Christian, which is all of us, it should be a big deal. It should be a day in which we should have great meaning and significance. Because it is a day that William Tyndale was persecuted, that he was martyred. October 6th of, 9th, of, of 1536, John, October 6th of 1536. Dan, you don't remember those days? All right, October 6th of 1536 was the day in which William Tyndale was persecuted. Okay, you said who? Okay, what's the big deal? Who is William Tyndale? It's the guy we should know. It's a man that should be important to us as Christians, as believers. He is the man who took an opportunity to translate the Bible into English. As he took the Bible and translated it at that time from Greek or Latin into English, he was arrested. He was placed into jail. He was put on trial. He was convicted of heresy for doing something of converting the Bible to English, which we read and enjoy every day. His sentence was to be executed by strangulation, after which his body was to be burned at the stake. October 6th of 1536, William Tyndale suffered his death simply because he took the Bible as it was written then and converted it into the words we read today in English. A horrible tragedy. No one should ever have to die in this particular manner. I mean, I can only imagine what Tyndale's family was thinking as things began to occur. I mean, they're probably thinking, it doesn't make sense. He's, he's actually taking the word and just moving it to an understanding that people can have when they read it in English. It did not make sense. But to God, it did make sense. And then Tyndale's life or his death was not wasted. God used it for his glory. And the world now has been the recipient of literally hundreds of English Bible translations. We all have our favorite. But here's the point. Here's the point I want to try to make with that. As you think about how William Tyndale suffered, met his death by strangulation, later burned at the stake. As that was happening then, people today hear a little bit about William Tyndale and say, You serious? He suffered his death because he took the Bible and rewrote it into English? That's why he died? The point is, people today, 
we look upon William Tyndale's death and suggest that he was a fool. He was simply a fool for taking something of a book and rewriting it in another language and suffering a death for a book that is completely today irrelevant. People think that Tyndale's death was unnecessary. He had a foolish act. I began to think about that again early this morning, and I began to wonder if we ourselves as Christians, believers in modern day, would take a similar stand as Tyndale did upon the precious word of God. I don't know if we would or not. Will we be willing to be burned, strangulated for having the word of God in our possession? I've shared with you before the story of how a colleague of mine, a student in seminary, was at a Taco Bell. And how at the Taco Bell he found the word of God. He found the Bible left over. And he unfortunately gave it to the person who managed the store. And the person who managed the store then walked around casually and looked for its owner. And when he couldn't find the owner, he simply placed the Bible in the trash can. The Word of God just has no relevance to people today. And for the younger generation we've been talking about today, notice that's true. It's unfortunate. We, ha- we need to have as many younger people in church as we possibly can to invite them to hear the Word. Because the larger group of them is not hearing the word and find it irrelevant. And they simply would not dare to want to be strangulated or burned for the word. And they see that Tyndale's act as something of foolishness. But we need to be so firm and so solid in our faith that if the young people today would see us with the word of God they would see us having a desire to just suffer to keep it alive. Do the young people today see our faith so intense that we'd be willing to suffer for Jesus? I mean, listen, Jesus suffered for every one of us. So would we be willing to suffer for Jesus? That's the question I think we must ask ourselves when we look at the church of Smyrna. Because these Christians, these believers were willing to be persecuted and suffer even to death like that of William Tyndale. Now fortunately for us, we don't have a Savior that knows what it's not like to suffer. He knew what it was like to suffer, which gets into the next particular attribute. We see in verse 8 again, it tells us the angel of the church of Smyrna, right? The words of first and last. Notice who came, who died and came to life. I mean, Jesus knows full well what it's like to suffer. His beatings, his mocking he received, his ridicule, even his horrible death upon the cross. He knows what it's like to have to suffer. talked earlier about how this particular church is attributed to the historical relevancy of AD 100 to AD 314. And scholars have been back over the years and found that during this era of 100 to 314 AD, 
it's been calculated that approximately 5 million believers died for Christ during this period. 5 million believers died for Christ during this period of just over 200 years. And that can be shocking. We can hear this statistic and say, well, why? Why Why did they have to die? Why, why should anyone be ridiculed or mocked or persecuted? And, and even we can even further apply to ourselves, when we actually take a stand, when we say we're going to stand firm in our faith, why do we have to receive such treatment? Should we be exempt as Christians believers from such treatment? Because it's so easy when it happens to feel sad and sorrowful, depressed, and so many other emotions. So we begin to ask ourselves, why does it have to be that a Christian has to suffer for standing up for God? We ask why in the midst of it all. And, and we forget that God has purpose and meaning through all of it. I mean, it's hard to comprehend, it's hard to understand, but God is in control and nothing happens by accident. Now, it takes some time to sink in. It, it begins to actually take some time to accept it. But think about people that you know who have already faced suffering. I mean, like Paul, for example. We don't personally know Paul, but we read about his, his life. And we find this written in 2 Corinthians that Paul rejoiced in the midst of suffering. He says, from the Jews, I received five times 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. And once I was stoned. But yet he can tell the Corinthians, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. I mean, the Christians at the church of Smyrna were definitely facing and suffering severe persecution. And we're applying then their persecution to our lives and asking ourselves, would we be willing to suffer for Christ? Would we be willing to suffer for Jesus? That's what's happened to the church of Smyrna. As we get into this second portion of the letter, to begin to apply it, we notice how they were just suffering believers, persecuted for their faith, standing up for the Word of God, standing firm for Jesus. But because of that, there's something extraordinary that happens now in the letter. Typically, we're going to find of each of the seven letters we're looking at that there's going to be an address given to the church can be followed typically by accommodation and then a rebuke or complaint given to them and it was something they've done that they should have not done, like the first church at Ephesus lost their first love. But here with Smyrna, because they're facing suffering and they're standing firm in their faith, they get absolutely only accommodation. They get no complaint, no rebuke. Amazingly, this is the only church in which you're going to find that they get no rebuke. No complaint. Only commendation comes to these believers. Look at verse 9. Just, there's no complaint given. It says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. And the slander of those who say they are Jews or not. But a synagogue of Satan. I mean, the commendation is notable. And it contains three areas. There's no rebuke in verse 9. It's only commendation. 
And there's three areas in which they're being accommodated in the midst of their suffering. He says, I know your tribulation. There's the first one, tribulation, which means not the tribulation of seven years. But he says, I know your trouble that you're having, that you're experiencing. He knows full well. And for that matter, we should maybe pause for a moment. And recognize that Jesus pronounced to his disciples upon his departure. There was going to be trouble and tribulation to come upon them. And we're no different. Recall he told them in John chapter 15, he said, the world hates you. No, it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So he told them early on to be ready to be prepared for hatred and suffering. But he also told them in chapter 16 of John, they will put you out of synagogue. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. He simply tells them there's going to be in your life a time in which you will receive ridicule and mocking and beatings. You'll be subject to persecution. He's telling disciples they would be ostracized, and they were. They were severely treated. Horrible death upon the disciples. We pray and hope that none of the death of the disciples ever comes upon us, but we need to recognize how they were told they would be persecuted for Christ, and the same thing applies to us. He knows full well our suffering, our tribulation, our trouble. And he tells them that in the address to the church for accommodation. But he also tells them he knows about their poverty. He's saying poverty, I mean, rich and poor, no, not exactly. I mean, because of their being subjected to being ostracized and persecuted, they were living in some poor conditions, and maybe poverty did occur. Because most likely, they had given up everything that they had for Christ. Can we relate? They'd given up everything they had for Christ. Or their jobs have been sacrificed in some way, material possessions perhaps. They're being severely oppressed, so he knows the situation placed upon them. He knows their trouble, he knows their poverty. But then notice how he tells them that they are rich. And finally, he also tells them he knows their opposition. This word is slander, if you will, in verse 9, King James actually says blasphemy, but he knows that they're opposed on many different levels by their fellow men, Gentiles, Jews, Romans. They're being opposed on every possible level, but they're steadfast in faithfulness to Christ. Let me say it again. They're being opposed on every possible level, but they're steadfast and faithful to Christ in the midst of their tribulation, their trouble, their poverty conditions, they're, they're suffering that they're having, their opposition, they're still standing firm for Christ. We can apply what's happening now in Smyrna to us and ask ourselves, have we ever suffered for our faith in Jesus Christ? Let me ask you, have you ever suffered for your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you ever been subject to ridicule, mocking, 
People mocking your behavior, your love for Christ. Have they mocked you for that? Have you ever lost some sort of job or income? Maybe like poverty, but, but have you lost some sort of income that you would have or job opportunity because you were a Christian? Have you ever faced opposition for believing in Jesus Christ? That's the question you have to ask yourself. Because the fact is this, that every one of us who have received Jesus Christ will be subject to these things. We will face opposition. Sometimes we should actually ask ourselves, if we're not facing any opposition, if we're not having any kind of suffering for being a Christian, are we truly living the life for Christ? Because we will face some opposition, some trouble. If we're truly living the life honoring Christ. Everyone will have received some sort of suffering in their life and persecution. To some extent. But here's the thing. It will intensify. As time draws nearer to the end, it's going to intensify. It's not going to quit. Matthew 24 describes some things. Disciples are with Jesus on the Mount of Olives. They begin to inquire about the end time. Jesus answered the question in verse 5 of chapter 24 of Matthew. He says, Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they'll lead many astray. You will hear wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are beginning of the birth pains. Verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation, trouble, to suffering, and put you to death. And you'll be hated by all nations for a namesake. Of course, he says, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. But notice verse 9. Concentrate upon verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my namesake. We need to be aware that as we face some sort of mild persecution today and some mild suffering, that it will increase and intensify in nature. That affliction placed upon us for our faith in Christ will only intensify in our time or in the time of our children. That 4% of the 12 to 24 age group is going to face some severe opposition if it's not already happening. These young people in this church today, in that age group, are facing opposition among their friends. Some sort of persecution being placed upon them. It might be mild compared to what's happening to people in Smyrna, but yet it still exists. And it's only going to get worse. So Smyrna is known as a persecuted church. And the time associated with it, yeah, is between 100 and 314. And the things happening to them is barbaric, it's uncivilized, it's atrocious. But it does not end in that period. It's not over today by any means. I hope that none of us ever have to face the things that happened to those Christians during that time. But yet, if it did happen, we need to be so firm, so steadfast in our faith 
that the young people who are observing and watching us, the young people who are watching us would recognize that's how strong our faith is. And perhaps they would obtain to want to perceive it as well. I'm going to give you an example of one of many. I got many books in the office that tells us of all the persecution and suffering that these people had received during that day. But one stands out among all others. They're all notable stories that could be told, but one has to be told because it's a man named Polycarp. And just so you know, Polycarp has been actually been told as the 100 most important events in Christian history, and we should know his name. You think, well, I've never heard the name Polycarp, or don't fret if you haven't. Because let me explain to you, Polycarp was a student of the Apostle John. He was the pastor of the church of Smyrna, the one we're talking about. He ministered in A.D. 156. He was forcibly marched into the stadium. His pastorate at the church of Smyrna ended in A.D. 156. The story goes like this. Polycarp, the leader of the Christian church of Smyrna, was brought into the stadium. People, remember how much people, the stadium hosts 20,000 people. And they gather together to watch this bloody torture that's going to happen. Almost like we would for a sporting event, like at the Ford Center for the Thunderbolts last night. We were cheering them on. These people are cheering on the bloody torture of Christians. So he'd bring in Polycarp. People lined up awaiting his appearance. Crowds were excitedly and enthusiastically cheering for him to be brought in before the Pope Council. Polycarp was brought in. The Pope Council then urged him to denounce Christ, but he wouldn't. Not to be deterred, the Pope Council again demanded he deny Christ. Polycarp, deny Christ, or die an agonizing, humiliating death. Polycarp, as the leader and the pastor of the Church of Smyrna, stood his ground, affirmed by his faith, stating this, Four score and six years have I served the Lord, and he never wronged me. How then can I blaspheme my king and Savior? That's what his response was when they told him to deny Christ. Four score and six years have I, as 86 years, have I served the Lord, and he never wronged me. How then can I blaspheme my king and Savior? He stood his ground. So astounded and angry, the proconsul then shouted, I'll have you destroyed by fire unless you change your attitude. Polycarp answered, You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour, and after a little while is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fires of the oncoming judgment and of the eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Bring on what you will. And with that, the crowds roared, they cheered, his fires brought in, and Polycarp died. Death again by fire. Burned at the stake. But before he died, it's been said that he prayed a simple prayer of graciousness and thankfulness that Christ thought of him as being worthy to suffer for him. Would we do that? If we're facing some sort of persecution, some sort of suffering is imminent in our life, would we be like Polycarp and take that stand and say, Christ never wronged me. I'm not going to wrong him. But we at the very end 
say a simple prayer of graciousness and thankfulness of Christ for even being thought worthy to suffer? People hear the story of Polycarp, the pastor of the church of Ephesus, and say, well, there's another life wasted. There's another foolish man who took a stand for Christ and it was worthless. Was it worthless? Did God not bring something good from Polycarp? Can he not do that? The persecution and suffering of Christians is inevitable. I don't probably have to tell you today there are 17 missionaries in Haiti who do not know what tomorrow brings. The ransom on their head is a million dollars. They don't know what tomorrow brings them. Suffering and persecution of Christians is inevitable. It's something that's going to happen to each of us. We may already missed of some suffering. It may be getting going to happen more tomorrow. It may intensify. Yes, we, we said these things. But here's the thing, as we begin to end and wind this down, here's the thing I want to introduce to you. We've talked about so far two of the seven churches. I, I gave you the proximity of where they were. You've seen on the map earlier. So begin to process in your mind, you have a chance now. You're freely able to go. Say you're landing somewhere in Asia and you have a chance now somewhere. You're landing between 35 miles to Ephesus and Smyrna. You're somewhere in between. If you had a chance to go to Ephesus as a church or you had a chance to go to Smyrna as a church, which one would you choose? What, where would you attend church? Would you go to Ephesus, the church that really passionately loved God? Or would you then go to Smyrna, the one who's going to be persecuted for their faith? Would you go to the loveless church, as has been described, or the martyr church, as now we know it? And, and as we think about that, our, our first impulse might be that we're going to go to the church that loves God. And, and maybe as we go, we can maybe even influence them, other people, to still love God. But think about the people going to Smyrna. I mean, it's not easy for us to want to go to churches going to face this mistreatment. It's not easy for us to want to go to a church going to have suffering and persecution because it doesn't seem fair. As we live for Christ, we think we should not be having to suffer for Christ. But a big part of reality is the fact that people are going to face us someday and join in an alliance that will greatly oppose your faith and belief. It's a future day that will happen in which you will join together as an alliance that will oppose you for what you stand for in your faith. I said it's a future day. I was wrong. That is today. People will oppose your beliefs, your faith. In the midst of that, we have to stand firm. That's what the church at Smyrna that's what we learn from these persecuted Christians. We have to stand firm for Christ. But notice there is good news. As we stand firm for Christ, notice in verse 9, he says they are rich. They are rich. They are rich. How could possibly he say they're rich in the midst of suffering and persecution? They're rich because their earthly loss was their eternal gain. And the exact same thing applies to them and applies to us. We are rich in the midst of our suffering because there is an eternal gain. 
We have that to look forward to. So if you're being ridiculed, you're being mocked, you're suffering for Christ, then rejoice, or you are rich. An eternal reward awaits you. Which is mentioned in verse 10. Notice that verse 10 at the end says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. I will give you the crown of life. And here we have a wonderful promise given to the persecuted Christians, but also to us, that will have this crown of life to be given to us on the, the day of the judgment seat. For people who keep their faith, they'll be given this crown of life. But not only is that part of the reward we have awaiting for us, notice secondly then in verse 11, it says we will not have to face the second death. And there's way too much probably to explain pertaining to the second death, but let me just kind of take that for just a moment and say this is what the second death is referring to. What is the second death? It is actually mentioned in Revelation chapter 21. It says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I'm running out of time, but the second death is what none of us will have to face. Every born-again believer will only face death once. No one who is raised with Christ, all who believe in him, will have to experience this second death. It's been said and it's true that blessed are they who are born twice. You've been born and then reborn when you accept Christ. For they shall only die once. But woe to them only born once who is never reborn, never accepted Christ. For she shall die twice. They will face this horrible death. All that simply means this. If you're a born-again believer here this morning, you have an eternal reward waiting you. Yeah, maybe you're facing some sort of persecution. Maybe it be mild in form compared to what we learned about what happened to Polycarp or William Tyndale. But you will receive an eternal gain. You will receive this crown of life for being faithful. You will not have to face the second death as mentioned here to the letter Church of Smyrna. He said, and these persecuted Christians won't have to face that death. And if we're here this morning, a born-again believer, standing firm in our faith, we will not have to face such a death. It's a reward for us of being faithful. But it's faithfulness, standing firm in our faith, that we must do. But the first thing in being faithful is to first accept Christ. If you're here this morning and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that is the step you need to take. Why delay? Why delay? Why not come to Christ today or recommit your life to Christ? Yeah, you might face some suffering, but it will be worth it because you have his eternal gain. A reward awaiting you. Come to Christ today, Father. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this message today. It's a bit lengthy, Lord, but it tells us perhaps what we need to know about the fact that we are living in a time in which there is some suffering, there is some persecution that just didn't happen during this early church era. It's still happening today, Lord. So we pray for those Christians. We pray for those 17 missionaries right now, Lord. We pray for them 
and ask the Lord that you help them be released and they get back home to their families. I can only imagine, Lord, what kind of suffering they may be in the midst of right now, but I pray, Lord, that you'll give them strength upon this day and give all of us strength, Lord, because we do face some sort of suffering each day for standing firm in our faith. So let's recognize that we can rejoice in our suffering. Let's rejoice today, Lord, knowing that you have a gain that we shall receive. Let's be thankful for the message of the Lord today. Let's be thankful first and foremost for your son, Jesus, who grants us all these opportunities and these things. For without Jesus, Lord, we be lost into this world. So thank you for Jesus, Lord. Thank you for sending him to save us. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.